Steve Ham should need little introduction. He's a multiple record holder, former British champion and long-term national team member. Once he discovered Piedrahita, he's been a pioneer in the area and is now a legendary guide. This podcast is about flying in flatlands, but also includes invaluable information for anyone wishing to go to the flying mecca of Piedrahita. If you've not already done so, you can also listen to a podcast on alpine flying with Tom Payne, which can be obtained by going to www.judithmall.net slash blog and navigating to the podcast page. Steve and I would like to apologise in advance if sections of this podcast confuse the hell out of your dog. I started off by asking Steve about the difference between alpine flying and flatland flying. A lot of mountain pilots are really confused. You know, if, if there's no terrain, all their sort of reference points have gone. And other people seem to just absolutely only be able to fly the flats. You know, they're really scared of terrain. So what do you think are the major differences between the two? Well, um, there isn't such a thing as you know, flying in flat, flat, flat lands. Well, there, there probably is, but we don't often go there because it's so barren. It's not really hospitable enough for... Um, humans is it but i guess when we think of fatlands you know we often think of you know maybe you take off at the mind and then we're flying across the middle of england which is generally undulating countryside but it's certainly not flat and the terrain is having a, you know, a sort of micro effect on the air above it and uh, and the river courses you know in the mountain environment you know that the effect of the terrain upon the aerology you know on the uh, on the air mass, on, it's almost on the macro scale, and it's so important. It makes such an effect, and it's very, very readable and very reliable. You know, it's well documented. You know, the, the way the air f- you know, flows up the valleys and the mountains. You know, as the sun goes over in the Alps, in the Alps, you know, being probably one of the most flown areas in the world. So that is a great comfort to a lot of pilots that they can, um, they know exactly what's going to happen at certain times of the day, and you are flying the terrain most of the time. Whereas in the flatlands. Now, the terrain does have an influence to a lesser extent, but it can be read and it, you know, it does have an effect. It's not just luck, but luck comes into it as well on a, because it isn't quite so easy to read. Now, the good thing about flying in the flatlands is that um, you can get lucky and have a good day. And the other good thing is that it's probably, on the whole, a safer environment if you mess things up. You know, if you're flying in a mountain environment and you're not really sure what to do, you can quite soon come to grief, either flying at the lee side or landing in very strong valley winds in the wrong spot. Whereas in flatlands, if the conditions are good enough for you to be able to take off safely, you'll normally be able to, you'll be landing in a reasonably safe and easy area. So I can see how people can be intimidated about the mountains, and I can see how people who who understand easily to fly in the mountains, they come a little bit to grief in the flatlands, not in the security way, but just because they keep going down because they're not really sure how to do it. Or they think, well, I don't know what they think, but I'm, for, there's some cases here, for example, where, well, Piedrahita isn't really flatlands. It's a lot flatter out in front than it is in most of um, the counties of England, but behind it you've got a very large mountain. So they're taking off on the mountain, but off, often flying the flats. Now, that they're, these people they will often hug the mountain as if it's as their life depends upon it but um, because it's northwest facing mountain and it, if maybe early in the day the mountain is not dominating it's actually the the flatlands which are working better so these mountain flyers they try to stick to what they know 
and they end up sizzling down towards the bottom of the hill and kicking their helmet around and thinking, I hate flatlands. Uh, it's just that they've misread it. And um, so you do have to read the terrain in the flatlands, uh, or probably more so than the mountains, because it's, <laughs> it's not so obvious. Now, if we were to um, be in a completely flatland environment, you know, where there's no um, watercourse or any undulation whatsoever, I guess we could um, fly that hexagonal theory which has been proposed. But that is, um, it never happens because you just don't find those, uh, those environments, perhaps over the ocean. Well, I mean, okay, not pancake flat, but there's some areas of Australia and, and South Africa, for example, where it's pretty mm. flat for, for quite a long time. And where, in that kind of environment, are the hollows more important than the bumps, would you say? Uh, it depends on the wind. I think it also depends on the, you know, this, this, I think you have to think about the, um, the moisture content on the, or the, you know, in a very arid, you just mentioned South Africa, Australia, and here in, uh, in central Spain, it's very much desert-like conditions, um, whereas the flatlands of the United Kingdom, a very temperate area, is all very green and lush, and there's a high humidity. So the actual, you're, usually you find you can bimble along in England in very generalised lifts, almost everywhere it seems, and on your glides, you're not losing much, and it's all very gentle and, and buoyant, so you can do cross countries for, for quite low altitudes, which is lucky, really, because in the UK you don't often go very high. Mm. Whereas in Australia or Spain, South Africa, you might scream up to 4,000 metres, and then you think, well, this is great, but then on your glide you just fall out of the air <laughs> and you're on the deck, you know, you're low and very quickly. So that not having that uh, level of humidity certainly affects your glides. And it affects what you should look for. You know, you, um, you're saying hollows. You know, we're going back to this flat environment. Even if it's very flat, and it won't be completely flat because it rains even in Australia and South Africa, there will be watercourses. So gentle, you won't see it very well from the, the air. I've flown in places like Kuruman where you have to winch up. But even there in the distance, you'll see small hills and, um, and there'll be patches of forestry or, actually, or there'll be yes, dips and hollows. Now, you know, hollow is going to be good in the flatlands if it's you know, a windy day, if you can, uh, especially if it's behind a line of trees, it may heat up more, so you may get a more consistent or stronger climb out of such a place. You know, going back to you know, this humidity factor, you know, these, the triggers are going to be slightly different perhaps in dry areas and wet areas. You know, in the UK, you probably, you know, especially in spring, you wouldn't be really trying to coast along a water course, you'd be um, you know, going for the high ground. Whereas here in uh, high summer, where things bone dry, very, very low humidity in the air, following a river course, which are often dry anyway, is usually a very good option. You know, that's, uh, you know, because um, humid area is more buoyant. Mm. And also, you often have a line of trees, you know, poplar trees, or trees which search for moisture. So that line of trees along a water course can be triggering it uh, if it's a windy day. If it's a light day, you know, it's in a slight hollow, the, the water course, so it's prote also protected from the wind. But it allows it to heat up a bit more, and then when the thermal does go, it's more moist and um, seems to trigger a little bit better. In Australia you know, it's, and South Africa, you often go for the dams, or like these small water holding reservoirs for, for the animals. Now, these are only you know, 20 metres by 20 metres. They're, they're not big reservoirs. They're just a place for holding the water for the livestock mm. and they, especially in Australia, are almost guaranteed um, trigger. 
So uh, it seems a bit strange. In England, you wouldn't sort of fly to a, a stretch of water. You'd normally be you'd normally be swimming in it soon after. But um, it's the difference between you know, humid and, and, and dry areas. If there's wind and the wind's bringing you onto a large stretch of water, you know the the thing will trigger on the on the edge, on the edge of the lakeside. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I'm thinking about it's the more the humid area, which is we're not actually looking at something submerged in water. We're looking at the the, the, the soil and the so the surrounding areas, which has a higher moisture content, but which um, which triggers. But you know, I'm not. I wouldn't be flying over the middle of a lake in the vain oh. hope. <laughs> now, always yeah, yeah. the sky is the first thing to look at. In, uh, the joy of flying flatlands for me is that you can be skimming along quite. You know, you can get quite low at all times. You know, this we can really fly them micro scale, unlike you know cell planes. You know, we can actually fly the same microclimate as soaring birds because we can land so easily on a paraglider it's not uh, you know you, you, with hang gliders you have to give a more, bit more margin but um, we can really experiment and, and dip into hollows and go into areas which you know perhaps you know, in the days of old when people were learning about you know gliding jumping off of the Wasserkuppe in Germany or wherever you know they wouldn't people haven't been able to do that until paragliding came along so that's you know, a little bit of an avenue of exploration for us you know, going where you know, soaring birds and, and perhaps even where insects go you know on a, on a paraglider we can almost go down to that scale perhaps not that quite <laughs> so um what other triggers or sources would you look for on a, in a sort of fairly flat environment well you know rising ground where it then drops off on the other side you know that's um the classic one. If you know this time of year when the crops are just getting quite long, you're often getting low enough to see the swirl patterns in the crops, so you can see you know those, that cornfield will be sort of leaning over and pointing towards the um, where the thermal is getting ripped off. Now, often you'll find if you're reasonably close, you know, a kilometre or so from the thermal, you're often sort of bimbling along in a sort of cushion of air, which is just bringing you. You know, even crosswind tracking you towards that thermal. Like here in the um, the Avila Valley, I often say you, you know, it's almost impossible to go down. This is a cushion of air, and um, you can just bimble along, and it will lead you to the thermal, and then you'll be up. You know, this, the Avila Valley is one of these valleys which is it's often more difficult to get down in than to climb out in. So maybe it's an exception. It's a real cauldron. Now you have to see how you you yourself you're tracking in light lift. You know, it may not be a, a whole turn, but you can often get an idea of the drift. If that drift is slightly off the drift that you've been getting, which has been you know, off the downwind drift, then you'll know you should be you know, moving off to another direction to get this hoped-for climb. But you know, other triggers, but there's, well, textbooks are full of them, aren't they? But some of them won't work as well as others, you know, depending on this humidity thing. You know, a, a brown field, well, fantastic maybe but if it's a waterlogged one well maybe not maybe the the wheat field next next to it which is holding you know, trapping air within it it's going to be a lot a lot better better than a, in a wet brown field livestock or tractors transport moving across a field that only really works if it's a light wind day you know when the air has been getting superheated and not being ventilated all the time so if it's a superheated field nothing's really triggering it and then a, a tractor or a car drives through well that'll certainly get it going you know, fires in the UK you know, 20 years ago used to be able to fly especially in September you could cross the UK going from stubble fire to stubble fire which was 
which was quite easy, an easy indication, but I don't think you're allowed to. I don't think you're allowed to burn anymore. But any fire on the ground, giving a smoke source, you know that smoke is going to lead you towards your next climb. It's going to be you know, twitched across to where the thermal may or may be triggering. I mean, the obvious and the, the first thing you should be looking at always is other other soaring creatures, be it other paragliders, hang gliders, sailplanes, soaring birds. You know, the best ones are always other. Oh, you know, these are things which you're obviously going to see in the mountain terrain as well, but um, perhaps you see more in the flatlands than in the mountains because um, there's a lot more um, food perhaps in these fields, and so you'll be seeing you know, here what's storks, kites, especially uh, you know, swifts and swallows. Those are the very best ones, and insects themselves. You know, if you if you fly into uh, something a lot of insects, then you're well, you're probably already in the thermal, and they're not going to be a thing you're going to look to fly towards because you won't see them except in exceptional circumstances. You know, here we've had before plagues of ladybirds, so you'll see uh, in the, although there's a blue day, trapped in the inversion you'll be, it'll be at the sort of red line <laughs> and, mm. uh, you know, where the ladybirds are. Oh. But probably, you know, you'd be high then and, and you won't to be too worried about um, low saves and looking at the terrain. I'm just trying to think of when I went to fly Piedrahita. There was one day where I was sort of on my own and I was trying to work out where to fly to because it was it was a completely blue day and I was completely like there's nothing obvious it's all like flat but then I found this little bank that had been built up to put some houses on top of it and I thought well it's the biggest slope I can see I'll go for that and it worked perfectly and that's why I was asking earlier about the hollows versus the bumps mm. just because it had been able to collect there and then luckily when I came it released and I mean, it was obviously a bit broken at the bottom because it hadn't really released fully yet, but you know, I knew once I'd found some lift, I knew that it would collect and it would establish itself, and that was really good. Mm-hmm. But I found the whole sort of blue and flats a bit like, huh? Despite the fact that I've done most of my cross-country flying in Britain. I know when you say that there's very few environments that are completely flat, but you know when you're high up and the perspective of it makes everything seem flat. Oh, yes, yeah. When you have even undulating ground... From above, if you're say three or four thousand feet, you can still tell what the you know the reasonable bumps are. But in places like the Avila Valley, once you're at four thousand feet, it just looks completely flat. Well, it is pretty flat. Yeah. <laughs> so middle, so yeah. this this is I think where people get confused. But it's still got a river running along the middle of it. Got tributaries coming in. So there, are, you know, as you get lower, you you don't have to worry about the terrain when you're at 4,000 metres anyway. Yeah. But when you're lower, you do. I mean, one thing perhaps we didn't talk about earlier, which can be, you can get quite a lot of wave effect in that, in that um, Avila Valley. Because mm-hmm. um, you know, on paragliders, we, don't often, we, we never really fly wave as you read in the textbooks, you know, the way that cell plays fly at them. But we often are flying when there are wave effects which you know, affect the convection. So if there's westerly wind uh, blowing or southwesterly in Piedrahita, and once you go over the pass into that Avila Valley, you're in the lee side of some quite big mountains, and uh, you do get effects. Thermals will trigger at points due to the uh, you know, undulations of the air mass, of the, due to the wave effects. Now, you won't be climbing in, in wave, but the, you know, the, the, the triggering will be suppressed in the, uh, the, the downflow areas and facilitated in the upflow areas. And that's quite common, you know, to get that. They're usually um, not particularly great days to fly in because, you know, you've got, they're not usually very uh, unstable days. 
as you need that degree of stability really for a wave to set up well and it's normally a little bit breezy but you know people have gone quite a long way uncomfortably <laughs> on days like that and you know if you analyze what's happening you can put it down to um, to wave effects you know the, the classic one is you know you go over the pass westerly wind and on the other side it's pretty much devoid of thermals you know it's a uh, air descending after those high mountains and it's just then bouncing up around the town of Amavida and normally there'll be a, if, it's a, uh, if there's cumulus there'll be no cumulus in the area but there will then start be a start cumulus at that stage you know usually about eight to nine kilometers after the after the pass which I guess coincides with the correct amplitude of that hill and, and the wind speed. So yes, you know, wave is flown in flatlands far more safely on a parallel than it is in the mountains. Well, how much difference does wind make in the flats? It makes a lot of difference <laughs> security-wise. It makes a lot of difference in many ways. Now, with, with it's, if it's a windy day, you, or you may be getting streeting, which you're not going to get. You know, the classic streeting with wind, you won't normally be able to fly in a mountain environment um, safely anyway um, but you can that will set up in uh, flatlands and it will also happen when it's a blue day you'll get uh, blue streeting so that's definitely something to consider you know once you find if you especially if you have to move up wind you know assume there'll be st- streeting if it's a little bit strong in this area you may be with stronger winds you know any you'll be getting convergence effects you know, here in Pisa we get this you know, very well-known convergence event, which is caused by the mountains, but usually happens well off the mountains. So that's you know a, a nice effect for us on paragliding. But it will happen in many flatland environments, you know, where the contour lines are. You know, if there's a low-level convergence or upper-level diversions, well, you know, it's got the air's got to go up. So there's all that to look for. If it's marked by clouds, fantastic. It's really easy. But if there's wind about, you know, assume some form of streeting or lines of convergent lift are probably going to be around. And um, if often you'll just blunder into it. <laughs> and once you're in it, try and try to stay in it. You know, everyone knows these stories where you'd be flying along with your mates and you're just falling out of the sky or they're just cruising along in a, on a sort of magic carpet. You know, well, they've blundered into the right spot and they're uh, taking advantage of it. Pudita is famous for its convergence. Um, I can't actually think of that many other flat places that are. Well, there's not many flat places where it happens, no, mm-hmm. uh, not on a regular basis. So there are loads of places which work with convergence. You know, all, well, all mountains, you know, this thermal's going up by the side, they converge to the top, and there you go, fantastic. It's <laughs> but what happens here is you get that displacement off, off the mountain, and it's a rare, very regular feature, so it can be used over and over and over again. And there are other minor effects, you know, this is all down having this very long chain of mountain which isolates two air masses. So you get two air masses coming in and the dominant wind will push it off the mountains. And you also have little tertiary sections of the mountains coming out of the main chain which can cause their own little effects. So it's reliable enough for us to do, you know, um, ant returns or some, not, it won't be FAI triangles, but you know, circuit tasking in flatlands. Now you, that's usually very unreliably getting people back to goal, whereas you wouldn't normally be able to do that so easily in other flatland environments because you can't really be assured that people will get back you know, into wind ac- across the flatlands. So you can assume people would do that in the mountain environment because there's a, a chunk of mountain which will assist them. So it is perhaps the only place where I think you can reliably do 
you know, circuit flights. But, you know, places like Manila and, you know, I've done circuit flights there, but you, know, you wouldn't always do the same one and it would be, you know, not quite so reliable for the all of the pilots. You, know, you wouldn't get them all home. You'd just get a few lucky ones, I guess. Would you say that there's meteorological differences between the flats and the mountains that you need to be, or that people would need to be aware of? Well, there is the, mo- the most important meteorological effect is that mountains will generate their own weather. You know, they'll be working on the, the sort of macro scale, and um, they can cause you know, a certain amount of unpleasant weather. You know, as well as you know, on a very stable day, then they're creating perhaps conditions which become soluble. But on a very unstable day, they're it will quickly become unflyable or more stormy in, in a mountain environment than in a flatland environment. So that's you know, the, something to bear in mind. But you know, as we, I think I mentioned at the beginning, you know, t- the terrain, even in flatlands, if, if it's gentle undulations, now that is going to have an effect on the air moving through it. Well, going back to the triggers, you know, if it's an isolated small hill, if you fly over it, get nothing on the front side, now that wind is going to be converging on the back of it. And if you're not rotated in, fantastic, but you'll probably find that, that convergence area behind the hill will, will help trigger the thermal. But it's, when we think about flying with you know, meteorology, we, we tend to think, well, if it's windy, we're going to be a lot better off in the flatlands than in the mountains. You know, in the mountains, it's not a very healthy thing to do, flying when the wind, you know, the geostrophic wind is more than around 20, 25 kilometers an hour. It gets a little bit unpleasant for most recreational flyers. Whereas in the flatlands, not really going to be a problem as long as you can take off safely. You know, most of us fly, places, fly flatlands. You know, if you want to fly a long way, it's quite it's quite nice to have a bit of wind. Otherwise, it feels like you're not getting anywhere because it's endless circling. I mean, here in Piedra, we can often fly a lot a long way with very little wind because we can use these conversions effects. But if you've got very light wind and um, it's just climbing and gliding, you know, flying 100 k's can take a lot of hours. So people welcome a bit of wind, whereas in the mountains it's, it's usually not a welcome thing. In the flatlands, flying when the wind is great fun as well. You know, people, you know, I think in the UK now in the last few years, people have been doing some really interesting triangles, and um, and it's possible. And um, but your terrain reading skills of the flatlands <laughs> have to be pretty good, I think, for it to come off. Far more so than flying in the mountain, where um, the routes are pretty, usually pretty obvious, and people have been doing the same routes for years and years. You know, in in the flatlands of the UK, you know, people are inventing these things all the time, <laughs> and on a daily basis. And I think you know that's that's pretty exciting, and it's a really nice thing which is happening at the moment in paragliding. You know, I think it's it's probably the same amount of excitement we're having now as I think those guys flying sailplanes out of Lasham in the in the late 40s and 50s when they ended up you know, flying down to Land's End and <laughs> having a great laugh. And uh, you know, I think that's where we are now. I think it's uh, a, good, a good moment in, uh, in this form of aviation. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think people are really pushing the boundaries and they're, as paragliding and paragliders have got better, it's just allowed people to just push the boundaries a little bit more. And yet certainly, I mean, some of the stuff okay, it's not flatlands, but some of the stuff that's been happening in Scotland over the last couple of years is really exciting. But also some of the, I mean, I did a podcast with Kai Coleman about flying triangles because he was really pioneering flying triangles in the Mind area. And obviously that's nearly flatlands. Well, I guess the guys from Switzerland would say it's definitely flatlands. (laughs) Oh, yeah, quite. 
in your ways. You know, someone who lives in Wiltshire would say, oh, they're big ales. Well, uh, yeah. It yeah. all depends on your, your viewpoint, doesn't it? Yeah. I was reading in Cross Country magazine, because I had a, a quick read of what they said about flatland flying, and they were saying that there's often a time in a flatlands day where suddenly they call it the witching hour when it just sort of all goes flat and you have to be really patient so you need to pay kind of particular attention to how the thermals are working so that you know that when when you have to sort of gear down have you found that in your experience i mean i did actually contribute to that (laughs) magazine article normally talking about uh, flatland areas but taking off from a hill Mm. and if you were to winch perhaps this wouldn't happen it's normally be due to the fact that um you know, the, the, the hill breezes don't really set up. It's working in the valley. You know, you're getting spreading thermals coming up and going back. Yes, I do agree. It does work. <laughs> and I will tell you the reason why I think it works. And um, some people may disagree. So you can take off, you know, early on the, um, the depth of convection tends to be lower. That makes the thermal distribution, the distance between thermal to thermal, closer. As the day gets on, Cloud base rises, thermal separation is greater. But probably what is the key thing is where you'll find people are taking off early, so let's say 10.30, 11.30. They're flying out away from the hill and they're staying up. You know, just gentle thermal to very gentle thermal. And then the wind gets, starts to come on much better on the hill and it feels like it's dynamically soluble. And people take off, look for thermals, but they start going down or having a much harder time to stay up than previously. And that's because obviously the valley breeze is coming through and it's ventilating. So the, the, rather than those thermals you know, spreadingly going up and holding people in there now, most of the work is this anabatic breeze on the hill. So those thermals which before were triggering on the lower slopes or on the, on the flats in front are now just being blown onto the hill. And then a little bit later, well, we've got much stronger conditions. There's an increasing anabatic breeze on the hill, but now the thermals, both in the flats and on the lower triggers, are all now breaking, you know, breaking through. So you get this. So then it becomes very easy to, take, to stay at once again. So there is a sort of, of the breather, if you like, for or it, it's, there's a period of time when it's a little bit the thermals are a little bit more um, difficult to fly because they're they're more absent in, during that period, just as the anabatic wind starts pulling onto the hill for the first time. I mean, going back to the thing about triggers, one which thing which I maybe didn't mention the issue, you're not usually using um, shadow lines in mountain flying because you're, you're dominated by the hillside, but often when you're flying in the UK, especially if it's, well, if it's a day with cumulus clouds or big congested build especially, you'll get you know, lines of sunshine, lines of cloud. And that you know, movement of the cloud across the landscape is a super trigger point, which you, you, you'll use in the flats, but you'll rarely get to use in the mountains. So that's one which I, I like to use a lot, uh, if, if the conditions permit, which I don't think I'd use much you know, when I'm beetling along a hill in, in the Alps or somewhere. How would you actually use it? Well, because well, you're, you're on a glide, you're not in lift, and um, you'll see there's a big patch of shaded area moving you know with the wind because the cloud's moving with the wind so the shaded area is moving on to the more heated area just that shadow impinging upon the uh, the sunshine is enough to start to throw off the thermal so you have cooler air undercutting in the shadow the uh, the, the sunnier spot and um it seems to work or um i've just got lucky when i've flown there but uh 
you know, it's one of those things which sticks in my mind, from flying, you know, especially in the UK, but it hit here as well in Spain. Um, you know, here, there's a few, you know, this, the conversion tends to dominate, but uh, that's often a long tube of clouds. So you're also having, you know, with often a, the sun's much more overhead, so you've got this tube of cloud running to the horizon, and it's uh, shadow and then sunshine. And um, we're often flying. We're always trying to fly if there's a big uh, line of congestors at the extreme edge of the cloud because we don't, really don't want to get pulled in. But by virtue of that, you're also flying in on the edge of the sunshine to cloud line. And um, it seems to be you know, a good place to position yourself in the sky, both high and low. I was going to ask you about the Avila Valley because it's so big and obviously gets wider the further away you get from Piedrahita. How does it work in terms of anabatic and catabatic winds? Oh, it good question. We, well, we almost never fly on the big mountains. Well, we rarely fly to the, on the mountains to the south side of it, so we're not really ever worrying too much about catabatic winds. You know, when we're in the Piedrahita Valley, it's a much more consistent mountain, and you do get catabatic downflow at night, which can converge with the light northwesterly, and you get a big mountain, big... Uh, late afternoon lift off in you know, a magic air. Whereas in the Avila Valley, um, we're never flying really close to the terrain late in the afternoon because we haven't got many takeoffs there, and the ones we have we don't use very often. So you wouldn't be too worried about looking for that. So it's yeah, I mean there will be anabatic winds up those hills, and in the you know on the south side of the valley, it, the mountains just don't sweep up straight to the top. They go over biggish foothills, then drop, and then go up again. So you wouldn't want to get, on a breezy day, get trapped behind those foothills because you'd get nicely rotated in. And it's happened a few times in British Nationals when we run tasks along, that, along there. Now people don't, you should be sticking out on the foothills, but people go a bit too deep and get low and have a horrible problem and, and come home crying about it later on. But, um, no, it's not really something which I thought or worried about, you know, uh, catabatic winds there nor anabatic ones, because I'm never going to be flying close into the mountain in the Avila Valley. Apart from, perhaps, the very big mountain called Sirota just behind the pass. You know, I might be, I'd be close into that one, because it, it does sweep up continuously from the valley to the top, so you're not going to get trapped in any nasty little hole. And um, I might worry, because if you're flying back from Avila towards Piedrita at the end of the day, you're flying into a, a northeasterly face, so um, it still takes the sun till reasonably late, but it's going to shadow off, you know, well before those, you know, the northwesterly ridge of Piedrita. So as soon as the shadow hits it, well, it's going to start trickling catabatically. So you don't want to go plowing in there, hoping that you're going to, you know, get an anabatic ride to climb out. But I think I, I don't think I've ever been that back that late. And normally, if it's a good enough day to fly back from Avila, you know, you're flying into a slight headwind, and you're flying along in booming convergence and it's all going really well and you're not going to be scratching along close to the hill so not normally a, a big worry Okay and um, I mean you were talking earlier about glass off or um, magic lift mm. um, do you say that that's a feature of flatland flying or would you um, say in my experience yes ridges well yes it is a huge feature here mm. um but I, and probably most places, actually, you know, you'll find in flying in a flatland environment, you know, you're, it's, uh, well, this, we'll talk about here specifically because it's, it's true, or <laughs> I might be extrapolating to other areas and I might be 
talking a load of nonsense. But here you'll find yeah, it's quite high going earlier on. You know, there's the interthermal sink is quite high. But then towards the end of the afternoon, you'll be doing very long glides and very buoyant air. And you, know, you might often be sitting in the convergence, but not always the case. But you'll be able to, you'll be climbing high, and it's just at the end of the day, the, there's a general, generalized lift off, so it's, everything's generally going up. So although you may not, it may not be going up fast enough for you to rise in your paraglider, your sink rate's much better, so your glides are a lot further and a lot easier. So yes, you know, as the valleys give off their heat at the end of the day, you'll be getting a nice cruisy glide. Yeah, it's, I think it's pretty much prevalent in most places. You know, the, the heat from the, from the valleys and the, from the ground has to go somewhere where it goes up <laughs> into the atmosphere every evening. You know, it lifts off. Now, it's it not always strong enough to um, create lift to, to hold a paraglider up. But if you know you get um, the wind trickling, you know, catabatic flow down down the hillside, just converging with a bit of the you know the valley breeze coming in, what's left of it? Well, that's uh, most of your most of the um, maybe the the restitution heat is going to be drawn up in that area and um, you can get some very strong smooth easy climbs um, in the valleys you know I had one last year it was reasonable lift on the hill but it just flew out with a tandem and uh, uh, it was lift for at least 12 kilometers out in front of the takeoff uh, around two to three meters a second and it was a job getting down you know the sun was well below before and um, and that happens yeah Usually in uh, bigger mountain areas, perhaps, but you know this happened well out into the flatlands. Yeah. And we, we, if you make, I don't know if you, were, we were, we had a competition at the British Nationals here where we took off. Well, it's too windy during the day, and we f- had a goal in Avila, and we took off at seven thirty, and um, people were getting very close to Avila. Some of them flew beyond the land by time, and it, the sun had set perhaps half an hour before, and they were <laughs> they were still flying in this. Restitution still struggling towards Avila. That was in the open flatlands there, uh, a long way from the mountain. So yes, it's a, it's a prevalent thing. Because a lot of us bomb out before um, that, that cuts in, unfortunately. Yeah, but it's something to, to bear in mind if you're on a long cross-country flight. If you can just make it till you know the restitution sets up, then you know that'll help you to go that a little bit further. Yeah, I mean it's it's not. I say it's usually not strong enough. Just restrictions coming off off flatlands to make you go up. You'll just you'll get a nice buoyant glide. But restitution with if you've got a ridge, <laughs> then fine. Yeah, that's going to work. So you're, it's, you know, it could be a glass hole with big air, and it's going to work a lot much fur- much further forward than it would normally do with just the wind. And um, fantastic. But you need a bit of a ridge. Um, yeah, I mean the big the big glass offs that I've been in have been Asia, where it's mm. ten o'clock at night and you, you're de- you, well, you just can't get down, you know, and you're yeah. still going up even when it's dark, pitch black, and their varios still going. <laughs> so. Can be very frightening, you know. Everyone, oh, I hope it's going to work tonight. Well, not if <laughs> it works out well. I'd rather be uh, sitting on the ground at that time of night, personally. Well, yeah, no, but I mean it's ridiculous when you have to fly back to the hill. Yes. Because that's the only place where you can find some sink. That's right. Yeah. You know, rather than flying into the centre of the valley, which you know obviously is what most people having to do the reverse of what you would do during the day, basically. 
I was going to come back to what you were saying earlier about safety, about that, you mm. know, in, in mountains it's different. And I remember what, years and years ago I talked to a hang glider pilot who flew in Western Australia and he said that it was, you know, landing was just never an issue because you just point the opposite direction to where you've come from. <laughs> <laughs> and you can land anywhere. It doesn't, there's just so many options. I mean, especially for hang glider pilots, it seems a very attractive terrain to fly in just because what you were saying earlier about that you can push your flight further. You know, you can in the flats, you can't in the mountains, certainly not in hang glider as easily. Yeah, I mean, there are flat land areas which are pretty un- unpleasant to land in. You know, if you, where they've got um, you know, vines growing or posts sticking out the ground or forested areas or, or some places where they just have traditionally had smaller fields. So they're, you know, with dry stone walls around them. So they're not quite so nice for hang gliders. But on the whole, you're not going to be quite so surprised, are you, in... Um, by you know a 35 kilometers an hour valley breeze or, or big road just in the flatlands so that is the big safety thing and um you can throw off you know you can get inexperienced people doing interesting things you know cross-country wise without too much stress whereas in an environment environment where you can stick them on, on the home ridge but once they come off of that then you'd be it starts to get a little bit more scary i guess in terms of flight planning for a cross-country day, is there any um, kind of considerations that you would take as to sort of timing or anything, or would you just do it like you would any other flight? It's just whenever the day starts to look good, you go. As a generalised statement, I think most people leave it far too late. You know, if they want to have a good day, a long, you know, a long flight, a long time in the air. But maybe not everyone's a long time in the air. Perhaps you know, people are just like just a few hours and. And that's fine. So the, you don't need so much planning for that. But um, you know, I basically fly in the UK. You know, some of the best flights I've had are taking off around 10 o'clock in the morning, which seems ludicrously early for some places. But it just seems to work very well there, on uh, in UK conditions. Now here, you know, we've got a northwest facing hill, so it doesn't get going until quite late. So there's no great rush. It's all very mellow in, in Spanish. But still, you know, by about 11:30 on a good day, you can get up. But uh, is it going to be a bit of a struggle? Well, which we mentioned earlier on about the uh, you know this how the uh, conditions take a bit of a breather about half an hour after they first start to get, get going. Um, I mean, as far as other planning, well, you, know, you need to have looked at your weather and see what you can expect. In this area here, we're always considering you know convergence effects and where that might set up to make you know a leg of the of the flight easy, especially if we're going to be coming back into wind. And of course, you have to you know, prepare for your airspace and the uh, and all those problems, which have become a little bit easier quite recently with the electronic gadgets that we have, um, rather than just looking at a badly folded air map. Um, usually, the best flights always happen when you haven't planned, don't they? Really, so <laughs> I think you know over planning things can can ruin ruin it as well. You know, I'm still. You know, I'm looking for those days, you know, like the old days, taking off at Lasham and landing in Cornwall on a cell plane in the 40s. I think that, that was me. You know, I, you know, just going and see what happens. You know, now, of course, the job I do, and you know, one has to be prepared because I'm not just looking at my own uh, flight. You know, the, the thrill or the fun of it really is to um, uh, see other people progress and uh, have a good day. So um, you, know, you have to plan a certain amount for them mm-hmm. rather than just yourself. But, uh, yeah, that's all part of the fun of it, really. Thanks, Steve, for that brilliant information. 
If you'd like more information and a really useful tutorial on Flying Piedra Hita, you can find this on Steve's website at www.flypiedrahita.com. If you enjoy our podcasts, webcasts and articles on the paraglider, please consider making a donation to support us with our costs for hosting and also to support us in making great new resources. We've got lots of ideas for new podcasts, webcasts and articles and we'd be happy to produce them but we need your support. You can find the donate button on any of the podcast pages on the paraglider.com as well as on the main index page. Thank you.